Welcome to the Earth Keepers Podcast. This podcast is for people who seek new and better ways to love and care for the Earth. It's a podcast for anyone who is deeply concerned about the harm being done to the environment on a local and global level. It's a podcast that builds community and connection between people of like heart and mind, people who believe that Earth care should be integrated into every aspect of life, and for many in the Earth Keepers community, that includes our spiritual lives. When it comes to living in better relationship to the rest of creation, one aspect of our lives that we don't talk about often enough is money. How we earn it, how we spend it, how we save and how we invest. These subjects aren't often thought of as aspects of earthkeeping. In fact though, if we aren't thoughtful and intentional about our finances, the way we use and keep money has the potential to do harm to others and to the community of creation. In the same way, Money used wisely and strategically has the power to enact much good in the world. The same could be said, really, when we consider how we invest our time and our talents. In this episode, we'll get some insight on wise and ethical investing from Trevor Thomas, who works for a company called Ethinvest based in Australia. The primary goal of Ethinvest is to help people and organizations invest in ethical ways that promote social and ecological good in order to promote a better, sinner world. From day one, we've been helping people and charities and organizations and trusts that want to know what their money's doing and to be intentional about that, to find good investments that align with their values, that are coherent, deliver their financial goals, but also in a way that makes the planet a better place. Welcome, friends, to the Earth Keepers podcast. Well, welcome, friends, to the podcast. Today, we have two guests. Actually, one of them is a good friend of mine, and she'll be serving as my co-host. So, Christine, let me ask you to tell our listeners who you are real briefly and what it is that you do day-to-day, especially with your organization. I'm Christine Sign, and the main thing that I do is that I work with the website Godspace Light, which provides a community blog to people around the world. We've got about 40 different authors that contribute to that. And then as well as that, we provide quite a number of resources for different seasons of the year and for different topics as well. So, And of course, your other claim to fame is that you were one of the founders of the parent organization that founded Circlewood, which then founded the podcast. So That's right. My husband, Tom, and I founded Mustard Seed Associates, and we're both delighted to see what's happening, including what's happening with the podcast here. Trevor, perhaps you could then tell us, what are you doing these days, and what do you do with your organization? Thanks, Forrest, and thanks for having me on the program. It's just coming up to my 25th anniversary at Ethinvest, which was Australia's first investment advisory group dedicated to ethical investment. I'm an economist, and before that, I worked for seven years in South America in economic development. So, Trevor, tell us about the mission of Ethinvest and maybe a bit of the story about how and why the organization got started. It's a family business. Father and son set the business up in 1989. The father took early retirement as the general manager of the State Bank of New South Wales. If you can see over my shoulder, there's the Sydney Opera House there if the sun was out. So, I'm sitting in Sydney, Australia. In the state of New South Wales, Mac Knowles took early retirement and he and his son Ross 
decided to set the business up. Now, Ross was a forestry campaigner with the Wilderness Society in Australia and been responsible for legislation that ended up reserving tens of millions of acres of native forests. And he thought that ethical investment was going to be the way to move the dial into the 1990s. He was probably about 15 years too early in Australia, but they set the company up and from day one, we've been helping people and charities and organisations and trusts that want to know what their money's doing and to be intentional about that, to find good investments that align with their values, that are coherent, deliver their financial goals, but also in a way that makes the planet a better place. Actually, Trevor, I think you weren't only ahead of your time in terms of Australia, but I think in terms of the world. I remember when Tom and I were first looking for ethical investment firms here in the United States back in the 90s, it was really hard to find. In fact, a lot of the places we went to, it's kind of like this blank stare when you talked about ethical investing. And in fact, I think a lot of people, you get a blank stare when you talk about ethical investing. So I think it'd be great to share a little bit about what ethical investing is for the listeners. There's a lot of people who've invested ethically over many generations, but you're right, people to actually intentionally set up practices to help those people is a relatively modern phenomenon. And really, it was, I knew of one advisor in the US and one advisor in the UK when we were in South America, because people would often ask me about investment and I could refer them to one person in both countries. And I knew of two in my city in Sydney. So we were certainly early off the mark, I think, as you say. But for for generations, particularly organisations with a a strong faith-based mission, have shaped the way that they invest to reflect their values. So lots of church-based investments have avoided the vices of alcohol, tobacco, gambling, and industries like pornography and environmental destruction, and proactively look to do positive things. And that was relatively informal, down to about the 1970s, when in 1971, the Pax World Fund was set up in the US to try and assist people who wanted to avoid any investment in the war effort in Vietnam. And so from that time, there have been an increasing number of funds that have been set up with intentional purposes around excluding negative activities and proactively looking to invest in positive things. It was quite slow through the 70s and 80s. And some of the themes that arose were, in our country, French nuclear testing in the South Pacific and and boycotting France. Globally, concern about apartheid and boycotting South African investment. So there were a few drivers Through the 80s and the 90s, the environmental side of things started to pick up as people started to talk about climate change and people started to talk about loss of biodiversity and the impact on the environment of factory farming and modern industrial life. And so there there was an increasing focus on, on a whole range of environmental issues. One of the interesting things, of course, about ethical investment is it's easy for an individual or an organization, a charity or a foundation to have a clear set of values and to identify what it wants to exclude and include in its investment portfolio. It's a lot harder for a standard investment manager or a pension fund or a bank to have an agreed set of values beyond if something's legal, the argument has been, well, we really can't exclude it. And so for a long time, mainstream finance struggled with ethical investment and it was 
very much a, a backwater or a, a small railway siding off the main line. And it was really only in the late 1990s and the early 2000s that larger institutions started to grapple with the way that they might take into account the sorts of values that drive ethical investors. And the way they managed to solve that was by identifying environmental, social and governance risk as material to financial performance. And so ESG investing emerged and the frame wasn't values, it was risk management. A company that did the wrong thing by its employees or by its customers or in its supply chain risked getting a bad reputation and being boycotted. So it also applies companies that treated the environment badly and were trashing the environment and polluting waterways and the air it would blow back to them financially over time. And so ESG risk management has sort of really mainstreamed the whole conversation about ethical investment in the last 10 or 15 years. And then in the last five to 10 years, philanthropic organizations, and many of those based in the US, have started to say, well, we really care not just about excluding bad investments, but mobilizing our capital for positive incremental impact. We just don't want to invest in companies that do a nice thing or do the right things and have our money sit in those shares on the stock market. We want to mobilize our capital for good. We want to mobilize our capital to build homeless shelters. If we're giving our donations, our charitable donations to the homeless, we, we actually could mobilize our capital and do so much more good. And that has become known as impact or social impact investing, where you mobilize capital for good and you, you're looking for financial returns, but part and parcel of the, of the impact investment is an intent around a social or environmental impact, and you measure that as well, and you report back to investors on both. And if things go badly, you can't just drop the impact side of things. If the investment doesn't work out, the impact is actually baked into the, the DNA of the investment package, and so you need to restructure the investment in a way that still honors the, the intent. So that has emerged in the last five or six years, and that has mainstreamed as well. And the way that's mainstreamed, interestingly, is around the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And so many, many fund managers now are looking at mapping the impact of their portfolios across the SDG impact areas. I've learned something. We've been doing ethical investing for years through you. <laughs> in case people don't know, I am actually Australian, and so Tom and I have known Trevor for a number of years, and it's just a delight to hear you fill us in more on, on what's going on here. Yeah, one of the interesting things, of course, about using the sustainable development goals to measure impact is that the United Nations didn't set them up for investment managers. The sustainable development goals are set up for governments, bilateral organizations, multilateral organizations working to solve the biggest problems in the world and to identify those key areas, clean water, sanitation, provision of education for girls, a whole range of, of impact areas that are really important. And at its best, impact investment is identifying those opportunities and mobilizing capital to address the problems. At its worst, fund managers are just mapping their existing portfolios onto those sustainable development goals. And so you get into what's called impact wash, where people are trying to dress up their investments as being very impactful. And I've seen some quite comical illustrations of that. There's a, there's a private health insurance company that's listed on the Australian Stock Exchange that 
is carefully mapped onto the second SDG, which is universal healthcare. And that private company has no impact on universal healthcare. It's, it's very much focused on its customers in a small market in Australia, but there it is sitting proudly. So there is a risk that impact investment, just like ethical investment, can be dressed up and you can have misinformation, which is, I think, why it's important to do a little bit of homework before you actually put money into any investment. So, Trevor, I find it really interesting that you're differentiating between investing in a way that simply does no harm and investing in a way that actually does good, active good. And I don't know that people always make that distinction when they think about how to invest well. For some, it's just good enough that their their money doesn't do some of the harms that we're describing. But the thought of, of our money being put to work to do good is super intriguing. Could you tell us a bit more about that? We have developed our own little rating system for investment opportunities that we show to our clients. And it used to be a traffic light, green, orange, and red, but we've had to add a blue light for impact in the last five or six years. So red-rated investments are those that we would exclude on grounds that they do harm. Yellow or orange-rated amber investments are those that do no harm, but don't go out of their way to do any good. They're neutral sorts of investments. And green investments, we say, are those that benefit. So there, you invest in aligned investments. So you might buy shares in a mutual fund that looks to invest in companies that are involved in recycling or healthcare or education in positive areas. So your money is supporting positive activities, but your money isn't going into those positive activities. You are effectively owning shares in a company that does positive things. So it's good as far as it goes. But the blue light is the one you're asking about, where your money directly goes into projects that to fund positive activity. And that's the, that's the impact investment lens. And that's the area that's growing most quickly, particularly amongst philanthropic organizations and trusts, where companies are individuals and, and, and trustees are looking to mobilize capital for direct benefit and to contribute to solutions. And they're doing that in the areas of renewable energy. So projects that your capital goes in to build a solar farm or a wind farm or put a battery in a community. They're doing that in the area of the provision of a homeless shelter, for example, or other social infrastructure. One we're looking at at the moment is putting residential care for people with struggling with mental illness into a city which has no residential facilities at the moment. And that is being facilitated by investors. And the state government has said, or the city government has said, if that is built, they will staff it. And so it's creating an impact that wouldn't otherwise exist without those investors. There's a whole category of social impact investment, which is called social impact bonds, where governments are creating an incentive for private investors to bring their money in to solve problems. The government takes the view that if private money is prepared to do the pilot work and prove something that works, it will save the government so much money over time that they're prepared to pay a success fee as well as give that organisation its money back. And so what you find is a sort of a tripartite arrangement between the government, a charity and a funding group where a problem might be identified, say recidivism in people in jail, so reoffending and going back to jail is very costly and a very common thing. Keeping people in jail is very expensive. So if a program can be developed that dramatically reduces recidivism 
the government saves a lot of money and pays a success fee. So that was the first social impact bond done in Peterborough Jail in the UK. And so a charity ran a program that reduced recidivism and investors were paid their money back plus a return based on the success of that program. That has been replicated in a range of areas. There's a very successful one in South Australia, in my country, where people who are homeless are given three years of accommodation guaranteed that then allows wraparound services to be provided. They've found that providing the wraparound services without secure accommodation is not as effective as if you provide somebody with that security. And so that program is running very, very successfully. They've done the same thing with out-of-home care, children who are not living with their families who are in institutional care or in foster or adoptive care. The state support for that runs out at the age of 18 for those kids. And so you get kids halfway through their final year of high school. Suddenly, they don't have a place to live because there's no support for the family that they've been living with who can't afford to support them without that help. And so there's this gap and the number of children or new adults falling into homelessness and into trouble with the law is staggeringly high. And the research shows that by funding them through to age 21, the results are so much better. And so there are programs in three states which are funding charities to provide that extra three years of support. The goal being to demonstrate to government that it's a good investment to provide those extra three years. And the state government's around Australia have noticed this and are making changes to their policy. So that's it. That's an impact investment. It's a good example of private capital being mobilised to address a need and demonstrating to government that it's actually worthwhile funding these programs. So that's one area. In the environmental area, you've got all sorts of things, not only renewable energy that I spoke about, but also carbon farming, paying farmers to reduce the runoff from their land, creating incentives in the agricultural sector to improve degraded land, and doing that in ways that enhances crop yields. And so there are a whole range of regenerative agriculture projects being trialled in Australia, and also projects involved in, in sowing seagrasses and seaweed that can be harvested and used in animal feed and also provide all sorts of natural benefits to the coastal ecosystems in Australia. There's a whole wide range of ways in which people are finding that private capital can be mobilised for good and generate a financial return. I love the sound of this, but one of the questions that people often ask is, what's in it for me? What kind of a return am I going to get on my investment? Is it just going to be more like contributing to a charity that I'm doing and not expecting my money to get an investment, or am I actually going to get something out of this, a return on my investment? A very well-kept secret is that ethically screened investment portfolios have performed very competitively against traditional investment portfolios. The perception is that to invest ethically, you're going to have to sacrifice returns. And that perception has been reinforced by gatekeepers in the whole process. So financial advisors act as gatekeepers for their clients. They provide them with a range of investment portfolios and they give them a menu of investments. And quite often those menus are set by head office and don't include many ethical options. And so the client who asks for ethical investment is speaking to an advisor who really can't help them. And this is more the case 10 years ago and 15 years ago than it is today. But the advisor would say, well, look, you know, you'd be throwing your money away to invest in that way because they couldn't actually help them. And so there was this myth perpetuated that ethical investment involved a sacrifice in terms of returns, when in fact, 
the evidence is that people can expect similar returns and some studies show slight outperformance. We don't promise outperformance, but we certainly say you shouldn't expect to get lower returns from screening your portfolios. And the interesting thing is that's one of the things that has driven the emergence of ESG investing in the mainstream is the fact that the major institutions cottoned on to the fact that the risks that ethical investments are avoiding are real risks that can have material impacts on investment. You don't want to end up with stranded fossil fuel assets in your portfolio. It would be very costly for returns. And so ethical portfolios tend to be forward-looking, looking at industries of the future, industries with potential for, for significant growth over time, and have done very well. So the underperformance myth is being punctured, but it still it still exists a little bit. I should say, though, that in the impact investment space, some people are prepared to take a lower return to get a better outcome. There is potentially a trade-off. It's particularly the case in property. If a philanthropic organization, a foundation has a large capital base, it would expect 7 to 10% returns on its property portfolio it might be prepared to lend money at 3% to a charity that was building a homeless or an additional capacity within its homeless shelter and make a very intentional decision that it would help that charity by charging a below market rate of interest. So you do get impact investors who are prepared to take below market returns because of the fantastic good that can be done. And bearing in mind that money that's left in the charitable organisation because it's paying less interest on its loans is actually put to good use. So it's not true to say that that ethical investments will always outperform. Some people choose to make a lower return because of the benefit that's associated. But if you're looking at your retirement planning options and there are ethical options in the mix, you don't have to assume that they will make a lower return. Well, we've certainly found that it's given us good returns. I'm certainly not complaining from a personal perspective, but I know that that's often a question that people ask. So I just wanted to make sure that we got it in there. Yeah, no, thank you. It's important, I think, to put it in a broader perspective. Every year in Australia, we have a peak body for we call it the Responsible Investment Association, and they put out comparative tables about every asset class. So property, shares, bonds, cash, term deposits, and over one to 15 year performance. And it's almost embarrassing how frequently the responsible investments outperform the traditional investments. Some years it's 14 out of 15 categories. (laughs) Well, Trevor, I find that a lot of times when I talk to people who really have devoted their lives to doing good. They often talk about their vocations as having spiritual significance as well. In other words, their work is way more than just their work. I'm curious about how you understand the significance of your work that you do to help people invest for the greater good. I very much see it as my vocation. 25 years in the job is because I love it and I can't imagine doing anything else. I have a narrow set of skills. So fortunately, I found something that that gives me great joy as well as being useful. There are two aspects to that forest. I love the opportunity to deal with individuals and to demystify finances. I feel like sometimes I'm on holy ground when I speak to clients because they're sharing their deepest insecurities and fears around their futures and their families and their children and their options for retirement. And they're, they're very vulnerable when they're talking about 
their plans for the future and whether they're going to pay out or not, whether they've whether they're able to save enough money in the in the jobs that they have. So very often I'm in a position where I feel incredibly privileged to be speaking to people about their deepest needs at some existential level, and and I find that is a place to connect with them about what's really important and their deepest values. And so there is a spiritual element to that conversation. It's not just plain finance. And I find no greater joy than being able to demystify some some things and help people work out strategies that will work for them and not just reflect in the investments they choose or the pension plans that they choose, their ethical concerns, but also look at the way they live, talk to them about co-housing, talk to them about sharing, talk to them about other options that are outside the mainstream potentially that would facilitate them in expressing their journeys in life in a way that's consistent with their values, their spiritual values, their moral values, and feeling empowered to make decisions where they've been told by finance professionals that they're being irresponsible financially by making alternative choices, or they're talked down to, or they're hit with jargon that that is confusing. So one of the great parts of my job is that demystification, that journeying with and helping people become more comfortable with conversations around finances. So I find that, as I say, an incredible privilege to be with people talking about those things. And then there's the other side of it actually helping mobilize capital. So when we started in 1989, I spoke about the father and the son. The son's goal was to have $20 million in funds under management. And he thought we would start to shift the dial if we had $20 million. We've just last year gone through $1.1 billion in funds under management. So he's an overachiever on a, on a major scale. <laughs> but it, we've done it without any marketing. It's all been through word of mouth referral and, and organic growth as people have cottoned on to the fact that this way of investing is very good. And, and so we're able to mobilize substantial amounts of money for good now. And that very much fits in with my sense of vocation and purpose. I feel very, very proud of the things that we've been able to do. And it's been an expression of my faith journey. I grew up in a Christian household. I went to work in South America to address poverty. I thought global poverty was the biggest moral challenge of my generation. I've since come to see that that's intricately intertwined with climate change and destruction of the environment. And so my personal journey and my faith journey embraces responding in ways to that that start by recognizing my own culpability. I've grown up in an incredibly wealthy country which takes far more of the world's resources and uses them than it should proportionally. And I've thought about what that means for me personally in terms of policy advocacy and in terms of my personal life choices. And part of that is in mobilizing capital for good, as you said earlier, not just avoiding harm. And so in those two areas of personal journey with people, but also mobilizing capital for good, I think that's the fullest expression an economist of faith can have <laughs> with my skill set in terms of making a difference. In our conversation, Trevor Thomas makes the case that when we invest, we need to be mindful of the health of the planet, whether we're investing money, skills or time. As it happens, Earthkeeper's podcast is offering a new opportunity for someone to invest their time and talent in helping to create podcast episodes. If you have experience in editing audio files, we're looking for people to join the Earthkeeper's production team. And you can do this work remotely from wherever you live. Our current sound editor, Forrest Reed, will be taking another position soon. 
but will always be grateful for the foundational work he has done to help us launch and build the podcast. If you're interested in being part of the EarthKeepers team, you can find out more information about this opportunity by sending an email to earthkeepers at circlewood.online or by checking out the show notes for this episode. For now, let's get back to our conversation with Trevor Thomas. I'd have to say that I think as you, you describe your work and your, your values, that you're also giving other people the opportunity to live out their deepest beliefs and even their faith. Because I think people might have a misconception that unless I move to South America and help the poor, I'm not really doing a lot of good. But you're pointing out that if they have money to invest, they have the power to do good, active good in the world. I find that very fascinating. That's right. And and it can be sort of disproportional if you're smart about it. We have a very large bank in Australia that mobilizes a huge amount of money globally for infrastructure projects and historically has made about 20% of its profits from fossil fuel trading. And it's a global player. It's Australia's sort of most successful financial institution. After the, the COP meetings in Paris, the world's banks started to talk about the way in which they could start to take climate change more seriously and bake into their own lending practices and investing practices models that are consistent with warming of less than two degrees. So they looked for a way of framing that conversation and they decided to adopt the UK standards, which come, have come out of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, or TCFD. And so at the 2018 annual general meeting of this major bank in Australia, Macquarie Bank, we asked the question, is Macquarie going to adopt the TCFD? And the chair of the board made a response that they thought climate change was important, but made no commitments. And so we went out and we encouraged our clients to buy shares in Macquarie Bank and to join with some other investors. We were going to put a resolution to the annual general meeting in 2019 that Macquarie formally adopt those measures. We took the requisite forms in to lodge two months before the annual general meeting and the company secretary went and made a phone call and came back and told us it wouldn't be necessary to lodge that resolution because they just adopted them. So a little bit of strategic pressure at a time. Obviously, the bank had been thinking about this. It was a clear priority, but small investors can do things that make a difference. And so, yeah, I, I agree. I'm very privileged at times to be able to be helping people mobilize to make the world a better place and to live out their values and not just to think that things have got to change in South America. Really, things have to change where the power is centralized. The poor will be liberated by the rich being challenged in, about the way that they use their resources. This is very moving for me. I find it's very moving. Uh, years ago, we we're interested in ethical investing and was a hard slog because there were so many places that we went to and some of what you were saying, Trevor, it makes it obvious why we had those blank looks from financial advisors. And I'm so glad to hear how things have changed, but not just how they've changed from that side, but how the banks and the banks that we invest in can make a difference as well. I know in Australia what the banks are, but can how can people find out which are the financial institutions that they should be investing in? in whichever country they're in? Yeah, that's a very good question, Christine. And the good news is things have improved a lot. And one of the really, really interesting things, particularly in Australia, which is a very large exporter of fossil fuels, and so have a government that has been very much defending the fossil fuel industry and our stake in that, 
and been somewhat resistant to change, real evidence that corporates, banks, investment managers, and also large corporate players are moving ahead of governments in terms of making commitments that are consistent with net zero by 2050 and by deep reductions by 2030 or 2035. Some major companies in Australia will be net zero by 2025 and 2030. So there's real evidence that some companies and particularly banks and large and pension funds and other holders of capital are making real progress here. In each of the major markets that I know, there is a peak body for people who are interested in ethical or responsible or socially responsible or ESG investing. There are so many acronyms and and impact investment. The US Social Investment Forum is the peak body. The UK Social Investment Forum operates there. In Australia and New Zealand, it's the Responsible Investment Association of Australia and New Zealand. So there are peak bodies and all of those have got lists of member organisations and and member advisors who specialise in this area and who are accredited for the products that they sell and for the advice that they give. And so it's not too hard in the major markets to find those people. Years ago, when you started, it was nigh on impossible. You had to know somebody who knew somebody. Now it's much more common. And there's much more nuance in the conversation around what's available and which options are really cutting edge and where you've got investments that are lighter green. One of the ways that the the managers organize their portfolios is by giving scores on E, S and G and coming up with a mark out of 100 for every company that's listed on the stock exchange and that you might want to invest in. And so you can have companies that are particularly weak in one area, but particularly strong in the other two. They've got really good policies around people and governance, but have poor environmental performance, and they can still score quite well, and and they can make it into the portfolio. So you need to talk to somebody who's sort of looking through that. We had quite a funny example last week where I was talking to a fund manager who was telling me the virtues of their their scoring and they showed me that the top investments they had in their portfolio and the third was a company that specializes in manufacturing only one product which in Australia we call poker machines I think you call them slot machines or one-armed bandits and it was their third biggest holding in their ESG fund and we said oh how does that work because there's a very strong correlation between slot machine gambling and domestic violence and mental health problems Gaming is usually one of the first things that's knocked out. But this this manager was saying, well, they have fantastic staff relationship policies and they've got a really good governance structure and they say they score really well on their ESG score. And we talk about the smell test. If it doesn't pass the smell test, it's a problem. And that certainly didn't pass the smell test. So you need to look not only at what the managers say they will do, but actually how that cashes out into what they actually invest in. And so you can have great policies and you can have great methodologies, but you can have very poor results. So an important part of it is talking to somebody who can understand what you're after and help you choose those investments that are well attuned to the things that you're concerned about. We had a guest last season who runs a company that offers carbon offsets. And she used a term I hadn't heard before called greenwashing, where companies will offer offsets, but what they're really doing is not that Good for the earth. It's a deceptive practice. And you had said a little bit earlier that there there is that equivalent when it comes to social investment, ethical funds. How are we to do our research? Like, how do we know where to look in order to 
to see if a company's really authentic and honest about what it's claiming to to represent. So we've talked about greenwash in the investment area for 25 years, and I mentioned impact wash earlier, where people choose to highlight some positive activities that they do in the environmental space as a way of holding a veil in front of all the other things that they do that might be less desirable. Often the veil is very thin, and so you can buy offsets that that are of questionable value to cover significant emissions of carbon dioxide. So rather than spend money on fixing the problem at source, you can you can say, but we fully offset this by doing something that, in Australia at least, there are programs where farmers are paid to not clear land that they were never going to clear anyway. So there's a, that's a good greenwashing example. So how do you cut through that? You really need to find sources of information where people are doing a bit of deeper digging. Often somebody who's reasonably aware of the issues only needs to look at the top 10 or 15 holdings of a fund to work out whether it seems to pass the smell test or not. If you're seeing companies that, that you know aren't acting particularly ethically in that top list, then you've certainly got questions to ask. In Australia, to try and cut through the greenwash, we formed a cooperative of ethical investment specialists. And so we have the ethical advisors co-op and we do a greenwash rating. So we give all the fund managers who claim to have ethical investment a rating out of five green leaves. So to get on the podium is already something, but only a very small number get four or five green leaves. Most get one or two because there's an element of greenwashing in their portfolios. If you're speaking to an advisor who specialises in the area in the UK or the US or Australia, they will be able to help you find funds that are true to label. And there are some fund managers that specialise and only do ethically screened or impact investments. And they tend to be better at choosing portfolios that are aligned to what investors want. If you've got a fund manager that offers 15 funds and two of them happen to have an ethical screen on them, it's less likely that they have the sort of institutional commitment to that way of investing that cashes out in the portfolios. Well, something you said, Christine, earlier implied that you have actually invested your funds from the States in Australian concerns. Is that true? So I've had funds in Australia for many years because I'm still an Australian citizen. And so I've done it in that dimension, not transferring funds from the US into Australia. It raises the question for me, what is possible? Because you know that people are listening from countries that maybe don't have these same resources and opportunities. Is it possible to invest money in places that actually do? It's certainly possible to invest outside the borders of the country that you live in. And most people are able to do that through managed funds. And so you will, even if you live in the US, you'll, you can invest in a managed fund that will buy shares in companies that are listed on stock exchanges in Europe and South America and Asia. And some of the world's biggest companies exist outside the US. And if you want to invest in robotics and artificial intelligence, there's a lot of, particularly robotics is based in Switzerland and Japan much more than the US. And so there are whole industries that you need to think about globally if you're going to build a portfolio. So the answer is yes, you can invest offshore. And for Australia, we always say that 98% of the world's investment opportunities exist outside Australia, so you should be looking offshore. There are whole industries that you miss by investing in Australia. However, getting financial advice to invest 
outside the jurisdiction in which you live in is quite complicated from a licensing point of view. If somebody contacts me from the US, I will refer them back to the US SIF to find an advisor who's domestically based because of the licensing rules around the provision of financial advice. It's very difficult. The reason that we're able to help people like Christine is that they are Australian and Christine has funds in Australia that have always been domiciled in Australia. So we treat her as an Australian investor who happens to live in the US. Ideally, you're looking for local advice to build a portfolio that is global. And one of the really, really fantastic things about impact investment in the last five or 10 years has been the way in which managers have gone into countries which have got very undeveloped capital markets into some of the poorer countries in the world and been able to mobilize capital for investment there. So building on the success of microfinance schemes that have been running for 30 years where microenterprise has been encouraged and flourished and helped the informal sector and helped people in the informal sector to create a livelihood for themselves and their families. There hasn't been a really strong graduation process where successful small entrepreneurs can go up the value chain. It's very difficult to break into the formal banking sector. And so there are numerous funds now that are specializing on helping emerging companies in low-income countries to gain access to the sort of investment capital that is allowing the next generation of tens of thousands of people to be lifted out of poverty through enterprise. In the absence of government support or large jobs from the the formal sector, it's the next step up the rung of the economic ladder. And it's often leveraged on technology. Often it's the access to a mobile phone that can revolutionize business activity. A small mum and pop store in the corner, if it's got a mobile phone, can scan all of its stock in and, and combine orders with every other mum and pop store in that neighborhood to do bulk buying from suppliers to get much cheaper goods. If you've got a mobile phone, you've got GPS coordinates. So somebody living in a village in Indonesia can order from Amazon in the US and have it delivered. There's a whole range of things that can happen. People can provide banking services. People can sell phone credit through their mobile phones. So you can create new revenue opportunities for small storeholders and big cost savings. And that's happening in countries all over the world, facilitated by the capital of philanthropic organizations coming out of the rich countries and partnering with philanthropic capital in those emerging economies. Yeah, I think this is heartening for me to hear you speak about all these different possibilities because... I often try to listen with an ear toward those listeners who are, you know, not in the US or the UK or Australia. And I'm asking myself, well, how do they hear this? What are they taking away from this? And what I hear you saying is that we shouldn't expect that working for the greater good only looks like A, B, or C, that for someone with any kind of business acumen or financial awareness can find opportunities. There are things that can be done to actually mobilize business skills and money in ways that do social good. I think people write that off too often, that possibility. Yeah. No, I feel very hopeful when I see some very committed people mobilizing capital for good and being very global in their outlook and looking at where the problems are the most acute and seeking to address those. So in terms of poverty, it's often mobilizing capital in poorer areas to create opportunity and working for transparency in markets and for the government to enforce rules where exploitation is diminished and working to improve 
supply chains. So big companies with their supply chain management looking down at their suppliers in, in developing countries and improving the livelihoods of the poor there. And in terms of climate change and the global justice issues there, the centres that have to change are the, the big emitting countries and that's where the work is for those of us who live there to really push for policy change at the government level and to reward companies that are doing the right thing and leading by supporting them with our shareholder engagement and with our capital. I would imagine that you and your position are looking at environmental injustices, social injustices, the big problems that seem intractable that the world faces. And it makes me wonder if you feel hopeful. Do you feel like the work that you're doing actually makes a difference most days? I have good and bad days, Forrest. I see the world at the moment convulsing with violence and challenges, and it's very dispiriting and hard. I don't want to make light of the huge numbers of people still living in poverty, the huge challenges around climate change. So I'm not Pollyanna-ish. I'm not always optimistic. But I think by the same token that having done what I do for 25 years, what I'm seeing today is beyond our wildest dreams from 25 years ago, where we felt like we were pushing water uphill and it was a huge amount of water and there's only a very few of us doing it. The amount of capital is now mobilized around addressing climate challenges, the amount of awareness that's around the emissions of carbon dioxide and methane into the atmosphere and the, and the damage that does, the awareness around the loss of topsoil and the overfishing of oceans, the awareness around biodiversity loss is much, much higher. And major decision makers are taking those things seriously. My general disposition is we've still got time to make the changes that we need to. And a lot of people are aware of that and pushing very hard for change. And there's evidence that that is working. There's a lot more to be done. There are some governments around the world that are on the wrong side of history still. And I hope that that changes quickly. But I really take a lot of heart from the work that's being done by philanthropic organisations and by large businesses and small businesses that are taking the challenges seriously and taking it upon themselves to make the changes. And that, that gives me something to work with every day. And I work with the nice thing about ethical investors is they tend to be very nice people who really care about the planet and who do, as you say, have some link to deeper values personally, some, some spiritual journey. And, and so being connected to them every day, speaking to people every day who are working tirelessly for good is very, very encouraging. We've been in conversation with Trevor Thomas of Ethinvest. For more information about his work, or if you're interested in learning more about just, impactful, and ethical investing, please check out the show notes for this episode on the podcast website. If you appreciate this podcast and want to help us expand its global reach, please share this episode with a friend. You can also show your support by subscribing. Just go to whatever platform you listen to podcasts on and hit the subscribe or follow button for the Earthkeepers podcast. Finally, it would be very helpful if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. I'm Forrest Dinsley, your podcast host. Our executive producer is James Amadon. Our producer is Dave Ulfers. Forrest Reed is our editor and the creator of our original music. Our research assistant is Rochelle Nordman. And Jessalyn Gentry is our social media director. Thank you, friends, for listening. Please join us for our next conversation on the Earthkeepers podcast.